the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning most right now, having gone through a regulatory process, getting regulators on board to do some of the things we're talking about, which is not a small thing, the actual implementation of a new set of future payment rails. I mentioned earlier, I thought those can be impactful, not because they're more efficient or that possibly credit card fees are four to six percent internationally if you pay with a card and it could be as little as the cost of confirmation on whatever chain. That's not a little bit of money saved and maintained in merchants' pockets in countries around the world. That's trillions over five years. Hello, we are at the Hub Culture Davos Summer Campus. We're about to go into a conversation with Jewel Bank about the future of banking and crypto. This is the first in our series of podcast episodes for the Hub Culture Chronicles, coming at you from Davos, Switzerland, during the World Economic Forum 2022. Joining us today on this exciting panel are founding chairman of Jewel Bank, Chance Barnett, the amazing Marin Altman, who is a social media influencer, as well as the founder of a new fund called Astrace. Anthony DeMartin from Polygon, who's really running the expansion and exponential growth of an incredible layer two asset on Ethereum. And Anthony Day, who's the head of SVP ecosystem at Polkadot. <laughs> And why do we need a crypto bank? Good question, and thanks for everyone coming out. Great to see a lot of amazing people. So there's different versions of a bank, so I want to define a bank. What we're doing with Jewel is serving the existing crypto community and many of the institutions, some of the people up here, that need and want to move money in and out of the traditional fiat banking system. And if you've ever been a crypto company and tried to get a banking relationship, it's gotten a little bit easier these days, but it's still a little bit of a challenge, especially if you're doing high-volume things. So Jewel was created to serve those people outside of the United States, where unfortunately my brethren are a little slow to the, the, the table about getting clear on what they want to do. So Bermuda is a place that has regulatory clarity. So we provide the banking, fiat on-ramps and off-ramps, and the payments and settlement side. And we also do lending. That's really important for companies that are trying to scale. Uh, that's important for big exchanges. And I would say to one of our points later, I love it. I don't say it a lot in front of other people publicly, but I will here. Crypto is a, a black hole for fiat currency. A lot goes in, not a lot comes out. That's a sign of the value that's being created in our ecosystem collectively. I'm not a purist. I don't think crypto and blockchain can solve everything. I'm not a believer that banks will go away. They serve a really important purpose to provide more clarity and trust in society. So, of course, I would tell you that. I'm the banker on the panel, so I'm the one guy wearing a sport cup. No surprise. I'll throw it off later. But I'm really excited the opportunity to help from the inside create change. That requires policy change. It requires a change in risk. It requires a change in how we want to do business and how we collaborate. So I'm excited that I get to empower a lot of the great companies out here or partner with them. We might announce something soon in the future, maybe. And so I'm really excited about being a bank that empowers this. Now, I think a lot of people in the crypto community have also said, unbank yourself. Screw the banks. Fuck the banks. Great. But when you want to get a bunch of people putting money into your community, you're probably going to need banks to help move that money out of the traditional banking system into it. 
and then back out if and when they want to get out. So banks play an important role, but we also want to focus on the innovation and the change to banks that happen. So I, I'm happy to be a part of that change, and I think it's about time. Yeah. Great. Anthony, let's go to you now. Let's talk about polygons, Anthony and Anthony. <laughs> we got we got two Anthony. So Anthony um, DeMartin for Polygon. Let's go for a quick look at Polygon's approach to the banking sector. And as we do say that, I want to actually take a moment to mention the fact that this is not only live stream, but it's our podcast for the Chronicles, which began in the Tech Lodge last year. So this will be appearing everywhere. So for those of you who are Chronicles listeners, welcome to our live Davos session. So Anthony, Polygon's approach to banks. Yes, thank you. Well, in, in Polygon, we are a scalability solution mainly. At the same time, also, we have a solution based on zero knowledge proof for identity that it's applicable to KYC. And although we have been speaking, I mean, I worked for 17 years in banking. Then I, I was living for 10 years in Frankfurt. We have spoken with the European Central Bank, with the FCA in UK, with the bigger banks in US or also in Spain. We have been speaking with them. Then, obviously, or in South Africa, also the Central Reserve. I mean, I think that they see that there is potential here. We are approaching them. It's true that all of them are open to collaborate. I mean, it's never that I have seen that someone was closing the door. But at the same time, if I am honest, I see that they are very reluctant and, and they are pushing a little bit back. I mean, which I understand because I was in the banking sector receiving fines. And at the end, you are scared no? from, from things that maybe you are not doing in the right way. Then they prefer to be conservative. I mean, we see that other industries are, are supply chain, Cities like, like the, the city of Lugano, where we are trying to, to move forward the concept, entertainment, insurance. I mean, they are more mature, are more ready to receive blockchain, but it's, it's still, especially in banking, the problem is on the last mile, no? the off-ramp. I mean, it's easy to go there, to do the on-ramp, all the process payments, this is fixed. Also, we have a solution for travel rule, which is something that they are really worried about. Okay, this is manageable, which I understand to avoid money laundry. But this is, I think we are in a moment where we need to start, at, at least this is our approach with the banks. We say, okay, we understand all, all the constraints that you have, but at least let's start with some POCs, maybe very simple ones. Obviously, if we have options like the one of Jewel that it's more mature and, and they are they have already seen a path to do the whole process that that's very very appreciated but we are especially trying to understand how we can apply the blockchain because i remember some conversations maybe with a single uh, server you don't need blockchain you don't need blockchain for everything i mean then when it's useful let's try to 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 go for a quick win and as i was saying right now there are two main ones that we are defining one is is related with remittances in Latin America on countries under development where there is a lack of infrastructure. And the other, as I was saying, is more related with KYC and travel rule. These are the two main uh, features that we have in mind. Okay, so those are the areas that Polygon's building for. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. okay. All right, Anthony with the TH from Polkadot. Polkadot's a little different. You guys are focused on wrapping and you're focused on DeFi. A lot of the industry looks at DeFi as being this as Chance kind of referenced earlier, this anti-bank, you could think of it anti-bank matter. Because in DeFi, you are the bank, everyone is meant to be the bank. But as we just discovered, at some point you have to exit back to real, real things. Like to build the ice house, 
as much as we would have loved to have built it in Polygon, we had to build it in Swiss francs. And so how do you guys look at DeFi in the reality of a banking world that needs traditional institutions? That's a really multi-layered question. I'll give it a go. I mean, firstly, Sam, thank you for the kind invitation. If we are on the podcast, I want to say hi to my mum and dad if they're listening in. I'm sure they are. I appreciate that. What, what you have here is a multi-layered challenge within Web3, but also a multi-layered challenge within engaging between Web3 and Web2. So if you look at the, the Web3 community, we've got builders within the Polkadot ecosystem who are building all around the world. They're digitally native. They are remote. But there are jurisdictions all around the world fighting for their physical presence, their headquarters, right? It could be Bermuda, it could be the UAE, it could be Japan. You've got this wonderful kind of global contest for whoever has, to some extent, the most mature regulatory environment, the most stable or predictable or even just easy to interpret regulatory environment, that's where the builders are gonna go. And so from what is the key enabler for Web3, actually where you are physically located, where you pay your taxes, where you engage with whichever the local bank is within your jurisdiction, that's kind of layer one of the challenges that most builders face. You, you hear all the stories of I couldn't get a bank account because my regular traditional fiat bank didn't understand me. Eventually that you, know, you find a way around that. You hear teams that choose the, the hardest possible regulatory environment because if they can survive that, they can survive anything or teams that go to the particular jurisdiction that has the lowest tax rate for the teams or for teams holding crypto, because actually tokens is a significant part of the commercial model for the business or for the individual model for them as builders. The problem doesn't start with, we've got to engage with banks because DeFi, the problem starts with, we're building new technology that involves tokens and digital assets. How do we anchor ourselves in a world that makes sense? Because nobody wants to be chased down by the SEC. Nobody wants to have spent more of their time focusing on regulation and legals versus doing the actual building. Right? The user experience in the ecosystem, whether that's Polkadot, whether that's Polygon, whether that's Ethereum, doesn't matter. The user experience of engaging with a product that has tokens is really still very, very complicated. And so before we even get to why DeFi, you know, are we talking about is this a payment rail? Is this a security? Is this an equity? Is this just a token that represents utility? Is it a B? That is our pet B. <laughs> That's our pet B. His name is Fernando. He's been here for three days. Excellent. Welcome. So the important conversation is, is to think not just at the regulatory level as to which is most efficient or effective. It's let's, let's understand that we're trying to build for a community of, of technologists that for the time being need to be anchored in a place and that we need to help enable them in the easiest way possible. Long story short, that is an opportunity for the first regulator and the first bank that solves both of those things in the UX. I.e. Jewel and Bermuda. May well be. Okay, let's take it to Marin. Marin, you have millions of followers on TikTok and Instagram. Many of them are Gen Z. What does Gen Z think about banks? What do you think about banks? What do your audience think about banks? The immediate word that comes to mind is frustration and confusion. And I think that this is because a lot of the reasons for what they're accomplishing with these retail users is often unclear. I know that a big part of my journey in getting into crypto was 
trying to open a bank account, succeeding in it, and then realizing that I had accidentally put my entire savings into Tesla because I didn't know what a limit order was, what a market order was, what kind of brokerage account I'd opened. And when I contacted TD Ameritrade to try and fix this, they were like, you, you can't really fix this. Like Your money is locked away in this IRA now, and I didn't even know what that was. So the lack of transparency and the frustration with what's actually going on, I think, is the retail user's hesitation in interacting with finance in a meaningful way. And I think that is often the hesitation to trust in crypto, because if they do not even understand what's going on with their bank, why they're being approved, denied, not getting a response, or getting a certain treatment from financial institutions, then why should they trust something that is very, very much the Wild West? And even if we know it's more decentralized, transparent, and often user-friendly in a, a logistical sense, the Web3 infrastructure and what it looks like is often unwelcoming. So I think that the average retail user and the way that they're thinking of a bank is, I have to depend on this. I don't know why I'm getting treated the way I am, favorably or unfavorably. And the average user you know, of a bank isn't really understanding of fractional reserve banking, the way that banks are lending out their own funds in order to finance themselves and what's really going on behind the scenes. So a part of my interest and a large interest in crypto is cutting out the middleman and the intermediary. And I think that banks and institutions that work with crypto in order to continue that initiative, in order to make things more seamless, more streamlined. And I, I think in the pandemic and the meme stocks, Robinhood kind of era that came about through the increased liquidity provided to the retail, often young Gen Z user, did begin to light a fire of initial curiosity as to what they can do in this system. Because with extra stimulus, getting able to go into GameStop or whatever their entry was, there's now a little bit of more curiosity and interest that wasn't there before because it is now more of a cultural phenomenon to engage in these ways. But I think going back to your initial question that the average Gen Z user meets banks with confusion and entering banks entering into crypto have the opportunity to, to capitalize on that, take that confusion and lack of clarity and provide not only more efficiency, but education that can take an entire generation with them. So I think that the first banks and regulatory institutions and corporations that specifically target how can we make this more efficient, transparent, and simple will win over a large generation who is never, I mean, I, I took business classes often in like what I was studying, never learned about these things, never learned about where my money was going or why it was dealt with in a certain way. So that's a huge opportunity for those building in the space to capitalize on if you target your messaging towards young people who are looking for a place to park their money. Okay, thank you. Chance, what's a stable coin? Well, there's a bunch of definitions and it's probably in the collective consciousness and in the mainstream a lot more from recent meltdowns in the crypto space, which is a little bit of a setback for the industry. I'll say stablecoins in their initial impetus were focused on people trading and wanting a stable value token to sit in while they waited something out or wanted to figure out what they want to do next. Stablecoins have and are growing to play a role in other use cases, but those are new. In DeFi, I think they're important for people who want to do more interesting and dynamic things in DeFi, and oftentimes those are what are called algorithmic stablecoins. UST was an example of that. And then there's fiat-backed stablecoins, and that's really my focus and part of the reason why I started a bank. So I'll start with why that. I believe that banks, while they get a lot of shit and people don't trust them, are heavily regulated, and part of the benefit of that, the public benefit of that, because they're regulated by public regulators, people that are not elected but are there 
to be chosen to do that uh, is that they serve a public good of trust. And I think a lot of banks have violated that trust. Those are runaway. Oftentimes you see big banks doing that. I'll just say my purpose for wanting to put out stable coins in the world from a bank is disintermediation. Ironically, the banks would disintermediate other people. So right now you have in the stablecoin world a bunch of people putting out saying, well, I have money behind this. It might be backed, but trust me. And a bank's purpose is to take your money as a deposit and say, I guarantee that it's here and I'm regulated in a safe way and transparently to say, I have to invest this and manage it in a prudent way. Now, banks haven't always done that, but that's their primary purpose. There's a lot of other purposes. They can move money on the traditional system. That's where I think a really exciting part of the next generation of stable coins are going. And when that happens, I think they're a bit more transparent than they are because they can also exist on chain, but be backed by a bank. So those things can coexist, which I think they're pulled apart and, and believe that you can't have them coexist. They're not mutually exclusive. I, I plan to have a bank that's issuing and doing assets and you can see what we do on chain. I think that will be innovative and build trust and I want to build trust in that way. And I think once that happens, there are what we call a new set of payment rails that are available and that we could use that are ideally, and the purpose of them is that they're more accessible. You don't have to create a bank account potentially to hold a stable coin that's issued on Polygon in a currency. And that could be really transformative and have a significant amount of impact for people that for whatever reason are having a challenge getting into the banking system, don't have the time, don't have the credit, and they could hold those things and transact in a way. So there's a lot within that, but I believe in the near term, banks can play a role in this area to address some of the concerns. It doesn't mean we're a replacement, that there shouldn't be algorithmic stable coins. I'm a big believer in make or die and those things. There's an amazing place in the world for those that banks probably don't play a role. That's great. And blanks, banks can, I think, play a really, really important role by changing what they do and the way they do it by saying, we're not hiding this in the boardroom, we're putting it out on chain. And I think that's going to change banking forever, and other banks will have to follow. I don't think any bank is doing that right now Not at really. all. I mean, we know that BNY Mellon is playing with some things, but it's all behind the scenes and super confidential. So that's a very big transformative moment for banking, to have a bank actually posting transactions on chain. Anthony, how do you see Polygon playing a role in these new rails? Like. I, I got to tell you guys, our experience with Polygon has been fantastic. We are currently building a gateway for Venn, our currency, to run on Polygon, which will be great. We have an ERC-20 gateway direct to Ethereum, but it costs somewhere between $30 to $300 to make a transaction, so no one does it when you can move Venn with basically zero cost across our network. In May, we launched 460 NFTs on Polygon. It's an amazing collection generated by our AI. They're the first dreams of our AI. But we spent about $200 to launch all 460 NFTs on Polygon, dropping to Ethereum. That would have cost us $25,000 if we'd done it just on Ethereum. So I see Polygon as being this exponential gateway for scaling Ethereum and really creating a world where theoretically almost anything and everything could be on chain. So I assume that's going to include payments. What's the Polygon strategy for payment rails? Yes, I think in Polygon, as you were saying, and I was not there one year ago, is they were able to, to become the leaders on scalability with the POS, okay? And then it's when they saw the path and they decided to bet still more on scalability. 
Okay, then is when they they bought us, they bought different zero knowledge proof solutions or zero rollups. Then two months ago they delivered edge that are sovereign chains that could be we are being approached already by some banks because they take the ownership of the data and they only stamp a hash on, on layer one, proving that this data is correct and it's immutable. Then last week we were in New York delivering or giving, deploying, sorry, in beta version Nightfall. What allows is that the payments are private. I mean, between only the sender and the receiver are able to decipher what is, what is the data that is included. On the public blockchain, you only see that a transaction has been done. But for me, what will, will be a game changer is what we will deploy in, in July. No? That is the ZK rollup, fully compatible with EVM. I mean, this for me will be a game changer. This, I think the application here on, on banking is extremely, I mean, it's obvious because it's zero, zero knowledge payments. I mean, you will be able to run smart contracts. In fact, for example, we were discussing three months ago, we were with one Spanish bank discussing that they want to become part of DeFi, if they can create a liquidity pool, which I think is complicated because Uniswap is so big that to challenge DeFi, but at least it seems to me that they are starting to, to think about it. Okay, how we can be part of this game? No, that's are there, what any, other, he was are there any other big banks doing liquidity pools in DeFi? They are exploring, but not that they are doing that I'm aware. And, and the reason mainly is because the DeFi pools are already so big and, and they have so many constraints on capital in order to fulfill the requirements from, for example, the European Central Bank, Tier 1, and all these constraints that it's very difficult for them. And I understand, I mean, it's not, not that they are doing anything bad. And this is how we see ourselves. I mean, trying to provide solutions in order that they can absorb all these transactions on payments that we hope that they will be part of the ecosystem in the next years. And, and as I said, I mean, solutions that are providing privacy, that are providing confidentiality, that are very secure because they are on top of Ethereum. And for this reason, I think that public networks are very important. And, and yes, and very efficient because they will be very cheap, as you were saying. Yeah. So Anthony, one of the big things that's driven the growth of DeFi is yield. So you can earn incredible rates of interest for incredibly short periods of time in Windows which has really been driving so much interest in that part of the world. How is Polkadot approaching yield and DeFi after Luna? And for those of you who don't know Luna, just type Luna in Google. Yeah, if, you, if you've got a couple of hours worth of crypto Twitter time to yourself, that would be a great hole to dive down for a long period of time. So from a, from a Polkadot perspective, we have a vision of Web3, which is multi-chain, interoperable, lots of different asset types across lots of different chains, right? So if you look at the way the world is at the moment, Ethereum is kind of an irresistible force. It's very large. It's got a, 80%. It's got a very significant amount of value, you know, transacted, locked in that ecosystem. It is also quite bloated. It is also quite inefficient. And so why you see solutions like Polygon coming in to help scale Ethereum is super, super important because there's still a significant number of builders there, still a significant amount of value there. But you've also got Bitcoin. You've also got a number of other assets that might exist on other chains, your own you know, digital asset that you've launched. Those should be interoperable, inter-exchangeable in a low cost, easy to do, and easy user experience kind of way. What we're trying to enable is that that's as, po it's, it's as easy as possible. We have a, a concept called cross-consensus messaging, which allows you to do information messaging. It allows you to do token swaps across different blockchains, whether they be on Polkadot, whether they be EVM, 
you know, again, we've got builders on our ecosystem who are building for wrapped Bitcoin because in all reality, no single chain is likely to remain dominant forever. Ethereum's dominance is continuing to be challenged as new chains come up. New stablecoins will be minted on different blockchains. New solutions for liquidity will come out, again, in different parts of our world. And we're not going to have standardization. So what we're trying to enable as much as possible is that you can get access as an institutional investor, as a retail investor, as a builder, as a DEX builder, whatever, whatever it is that you might be. You can get easy technical integration to lots of those different pools and, and the rest of the ecosystem will create a front end on, front, on, on, the, on the top of it, right? Rather than having an Ethereum-specific experience, which you then have to go to a separate bridge, then go off to some other asset class somewhere else. That's a horrible user experience, and it's also particularly insecure, right? So shared security is also a, a quite a significant part of what we're trying to produce at the same time, because bridges across multiple asset types has been proven to be not a particularly secure way of creating scalability right now. Okay, we're going to take a little view out here to the audience. I'm going to bring you the mic, so raise your hand and um, ask the panel any question you'd like. And then we're going to come back for a final round of questions on the future of banking. So does anybody have a question? or? We'll even take non-blockchain questions. If you guys want to have fashion questions, where to go for dinner in Davos. It's my first Davos as well, so if you guys want to share some information with us as well, that would be fantastic. All the best food is here. <laughs> okay. Say your name and where you're from. Hi, my name's Antia. Thank you guys so much for speaking. I was just wondering, so if banks are basically backing crypto, does that help with like security instead of like hacking? Is there any any kind of like risk for hackers to come in, or does that like mitigate that risk since it's in a it's backed by a bank? As the only bank on the panel, I can say that it, it doesn't make the risk less likely of happening. It means that we have to have more insurance to make people whole if it does, because banks can't stand to lose and say, well, sorry, it was a fun experiment. So we're held to a different standard. We should be uh, as custodian of people's value. That's not to say that there couldn't be big things. So the cybersecurity is becoming a growing issue. It's not going to go away. It's not getting less. It's getting more. There's juicy things to try and hack out there. Banks will become more vulnerable, not less in the future, as they move into a more digital asset crypto world. And hopefully, they handle it well. So your question is a really good one. I would imagine what you could think is, are my assets safe if I have them? What happens with most banks is they're not building their own very unique digital asset custody solutions. Some of them are. A lot of them are partnering ourselves. We're not hardware experts. We're not digital asset security experts in the development with these. We work with and partner with other great people who are. So you'll see a lot of things in common around digital asset custody, which is an area of security and security vulnerability. So I would say the longer that this wonderful unintended marriage of banking and crypto happens, and it is happening. It'll take a while. The closer those things are intertwined and one and the same, because there'll be a lot of the same custodians that are holding the assets of banks. I might jump in on that one as well, because you asked the question in a very user-centric way, which I think is wonderful. So I'm worried about risk. This is an interesting, this is an interesting group of assets for me to have exposure to 
but I'm worried that something bad will happen. And frankly, there will be a very large number of ways, an increasing number of ways, uh, as was said, where there will be vulnerabilities, right? You can have hacks at the smart contract level. You can have hacks at the bridge level. You can have hacks at the exchange level. You know, your bank account today is vulnerable if somebody gets hold of your password and your mobile phone. You know, the, the level of security and the points at which someone tries to intermediate that is increasingly important. And we're leveling up or increasing the burden of proof on financial and security and social media literacy now. I mean, really interesting if we can kind of go a level on that one, because as a parent, right, we're seeing play to earn gaming becoming, lowering the barriers to entry for young, young people to have crypto as well. So they're going to have wallets, they're going to have digital assets, they're going to be able to swap those digital assets for Bitcoin. And they're going to be able to go and do things with that out in a metaverse proposition, in a DeFi proposition, because that's going to become increasingly common in the world. So how, how do we, as parents, and how do they, as young people, get appropriate education on those three domains, right? Financial security, uh, sorry, financial literacy, security literacy, and social media literacy, because what to buy and what tokens they should be buying in and what to swap into and what, you know, which NFT projects to buy is open source and available to all. I think we're really close to a tipping point. If any of you have dealt with a traditional bank like HSBC or any of a number of others, they're constantly holding back a tide, tidal wave of hacking, of security risks, of fraud, everything. And so these systems, when properly secured, are much more rapid, they're 24 seven, and they're safer when they're properly done. And so the question I think really becomes is like, at what point will crypto be seen as being the safer alternative than a legacy bank? I, I know that when it comes to, like we run a business, we operate locations around the world, we often have to move large amounts of money very quickly. It's so much easier now for us to use the blockchain to make a payment, because we know it's gonna get there than it is to use the banking system. And I can tell you, especially since Ukraine happened, the last three months, for anybody trying to do something here in Davos at any type of scale, moving money internationally just since the sanctions happened in Russia has become twice as hard to move money from like Europe to America. Maybe we're seeing one in four transactions returned right now. So I think the question for me is like, when can everybody start taking crypto? Because it's so much more easy and reliable to get the money to the place it needs to be in the time frame it needs to be there. And I think that's something that everybody's having a lot of pain on in the old system. So I want to come back to Marin for a question, but I'm going to throw this to Antony and Chance to just think about is like, when do you think that will happen? But first, Marin, would you think of yourself as crypto native? Yes, I would. Even though I held a bank account before entering crypto, I did not learn traditional finance. I do not have a background intentionally in learning that. And I think that in a way that was a good unintentional move because I didn't have to unlearn necessarily anything or be converted into crypto. And I think a lot of the younger generation getting into finance will also consider themselves crypto native because if they're learning something about finance online, there's a large chance that it will involve crypto, will involve how to set up a MetaMask to buy this token or look at this protocol. So I would consider myself very crypto native and in learning to literally only, I mean, as a trader, I've never traded equities. I guess I've never really substantially traded equities. So a lot of the younger generation, I think to tie on to your question, it'll be the younger generation that is the 
line to take crypto more seriously or trust it more than a lot of the legacy infrastructure because the young minds that don't have to be unlearned or convinced that immediately see the efficiency because they're brought up with it. I think that we can count on educating the youth and there's a higher return on investment when you get a user early and you can teach them something at a young age that then develops in complexity and um, security. Teaching all these things early on to kids, I think will be the way that crypto is seen as the more, in general, I mean, there's always exceptions, there's always nuance, but in general, the more efficient option. I can see it already with like, I have a younger brother in high school. I didn't know this, but he showed me his portfolio when like he came to visit me in New York and held, held quite a bit of things that I would not expect a 17 year old to be aware of. And what, can you tell us what? He was, he's really into Cardano. I told him, I don't have anything bad to say necessarily, but I told him you might want to consider some other assets. Um, he held Cardano, he of course held Doge. I actually told him, I mean to him, I don't really care if it's financial advice or not, but I told him you might want to put more in Doge. Went up a lot at the time, like a year and a half ago, and uh, that was that. Was that. But I, I gave him some ETH. 2020, I gave him an, uh, one full ETH for his birthday, and he's still holding the entire thing, and it's like his prized possession. So that was a cute moment. But yeah, along with that, I mean, he's not necessarily in finance. Like, he uh, has other interests, but this was something that he says is very common amidst everyone he knows. And I think that that's the real gateway will be immediately the efficiency. It makes sense. And there's not an unlearning or a cultural inertia or stigma as there might be with older professionals in the space. Cool, thank you. Anthony, let's go back to that question about the future of banks and this tipping point. Where do you see it going? Well, I, I think, as I said, it's it's complicated. I mean, I remember during my last year at, at Deutsche Bank, I was doing the digital asset platform. And, and at the end, everything stopped because compliance and legal, they, they saw that the management of the keys, of the private keys, was a real problem. No? Then, for me, the, the big banks are there is no future for them. I mean, this, this whole banking concept, it's very difficult that it will be maintained in the future. Also due to regulations and, and there's different ratios that they need to achieve, which it seems impossible to me. In fact, investment banking should be separated from commercial banking, no? That's very clear. And I think at the end, that will happen with, with the central system and we, are, we see that with different fintechs, no? That, each one will be able to somehow capture value in each one of the, these niches. I think that one fintech can be more efficient in payments, another more in DeFi maybe. For sure, there will be one that will try to, to take the whole concept, why not? But it seems difficult to me. But well, in any case, I think that it's also unstoppable, also as she was defining, no? the young people. I mean, I have one son, he's 14 years old, and he manages tokens and, and metaverse better than me. I mean. There are still concepts that I have no clue. And, and he, for him, is so natural. I mean, he's so embedded in, in his head and his friends also that, that, yes, I think this will happen in a natural way. Then I foresee a more frag fragmented banking sector and with new players. Do you think that gaming and banking are going to merge? No, because the, the use case is very different. I mean, of course, I understand that with gaming, you, you, you can gamify, you can earn tokens, but. At the end, if you, you are doing a lending platform, there is no game there. I mean, you, you should give me the money, I should extract yield, and I will give you the, give you the money back. No? Then, of course, there, there are some touch points where you can generate some uh, little yield, but no, not for the big corporates, honestly. Chance. Not just the future of banking, but the future of Jewel. Probably can't tell us the whole 
top secret sauce plan, but give us a view of how Juul's gonna move banking into the future. Amazing softball question, thanks. The thing that gets me out of bed in the morning most right now, having gone through a regulatory process, getting regulators on board to do some of the things we're talking about, which is not a small thing, the actual implementation of a new set of future payment rails, I mentioned earlier I thought those can be impactful, not because they're more efficient or that possibly credit card fees are 4 to 6% internationally if you pay with a card, and it could be as little as the cost of confirmation on whatever chain, that's not a little bit of money saved and maintained in merchants' pockets in countries around the world. That's trillions over five years. That's really exciting. That's impactful. That is like my heart of what we're doing. My pocketbook of what we're doing is also empowering the people that need the help who are the big companies that I believe are going to help those people directly. So my bank is nerdy infrastructure at scale. I don't touch all those people. I help issue and provide an API for other people to go touch those people and help them. And so the future of my business is that no one knows what I'm doing, but all the people who are doing stuff impactful directly in front of clients, in front of the developing world, or at Binance or whatever big exchange, use our tools and that I feel like I empower those people. That's the future of my company. And as a bank, I think we're fortunate we get to move money, we get to do things with fiat, we get to do stable coins, and we get to lend against crypto assets. All those things have unique leverage in this world. And so I'm excited to apply that and help entrepreneurs. That's the thing that I'm excited about. And I think that's a magic formula to doing a lot of things that are good, like helping the innovators. There's no secret to that. So you could steal my plan, but I'll out, out execute it. Okay. Yeah, if, if I can say, I can raise one point because now that he was speaking, also the future of banking, thanks to blockchain, I think that it will allow a lot of people that now they have no access to banking. And I am speaking specifically about sub-Saharan countries, also Latin America, some parts where they, they have a lack of infrastructure, they, they have also some manipulation from the currencies, maybe part of South, South Asia, okay? But these countries, they, thanks to DeFi, thanks to these new concepts that are being raised, thanks to stable coins, for example... Thanks to issuance of Polygon. No, 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 but for example, people doesn't realize that a lot of stable coin is used, for example, for, for trading between Malaysia and Indonesia because they don't have access to dollars and, and then they are using this. No? Then, and the same happens in, in sub-Saharan countries. No? Then, because we, we have dollars in our credit card or Swiss francs or euros that are very stable. Then we, we are not the target for these stable coins in the short term. Okay, maybe for, for lending. But, but then for me, we shouldn't forget that this will create a better world or at least this is also something that we have in our aim or in our head. And I think I see more value added in the future of banking in these countries than not in developed countries as of today. In the future, let's see. But I wanted to, to point this out. Yeah, that's true. Very true. And I think that's the great hope. You know, I think El Salvador, as much as it's been criticized for, you know, people looking at the very basic idea of Bukele buying Bitcoin at X and holding it now at Y, the reality of the El Salvador experiment is, I think, the proof in the pudding for how this stuff is going to work. Because for the last entire history of El Salvador, financial inclusion, the number of people who own a bank account there was at around 30%. There are 6 million people in the country, and within six months of launching Bitcoin and Chivo as their, this Bitcoin wallet, which includes a kind of conversion back to a, a digital dollar, 
they took the financial inclusion rate to like 70 percent like four million accounts There's six million people within 30 days of launching it they were at four million people who created an account like it was larger than the banking industry yeah. in el salvador exactly. in 30 days and the whole country and by now it's gone even farther so to take a country from 30 percent financial inclusion to over 70 percent and moving rapidly towards full inclusion is the great dream that everybody here at davos talks about but it's cool to see crypto actually doing it and it's getting a lot of shit in the media yeah but they're still doing it and you know, it's it's not going to be perfect, but it's good to see as an attempt. Marin, Chance, Anthony, Anthony, a round of applause. Thank you so much. And thanks, Dan. Great job. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna open it up, open it up for more conversation. For those of you on the live stream, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back soon. For those of you on the podcast, find more episodes of the Hub Culture Chronicles on Spotify, iTunes, Hub Culture, and wherever else you get your podcast. Until next time. Thank <music> you.